And then I came to a point where I, I decided I need, to make a, I need to make a decision, one or the other, because they were both suffering. Um, so I decided to cut a solo record and see where it went. And if it didn't, you know, go somewhere that, that made some sense career-wise, then I was just going to give it up and focus on the food side. So that's what I did. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Atlanta Foodcast, and welcome to a very special two-part episode of the show. I'm incredibly honored to bring you guys this conversation that I recently had with a hero of mine, and that's Chef Steven Satterfield of Miller Union. If you don't know the story behind this five-time nominated and 2017 James Beard Best Chef in the Southeast, you are in for a real treat. His work to perpetuate agriculture and sustainable foods is huge for Atlanta and especially throughout all of the Southeast states, but I'll leave it there. And before we jump in, I wanted to make sure that you guys could perk your ears up just a bit. You're going to hear some different music throughout this episode and the next one. And at the intro, you were actually listening to Sapelo Sound by Sealy, which is his band that you're going to hear more about in just a few minutes. But Chef Steven was incredibly generous to let us use some of the music from the album Winter Birds for both of these episodes. So enjoy the tunes and enjoy this two-parter. So here's part one of my conversation with Chef Steven Satterfield. I got to say, I, I'm like, I'm freaking out a little bit because I've, I've dined at Miller Union so many times and um, I think I, I want to like tell you a little bit of a story if that's okay. Sure. So I, I was at Food and Wine years ago and I'm sitting in one of the you know big rooms and you're on stage and Linton Hopkins is interviewing you and he's going through you know your approach to you know seasonal produce and vegetables and and just you know where you like really cut your teeth here in Atlanta and he said like this is as best as I can get the verbatim quote but he said Stephen Satterfield's seasonal vegetable plate is one of the greatest dishes that this country has to offer and I was booking my reservation to Miller Union (laughs) while he was saying this so I uh this is such a huge honor to have you on the show so thank thank you you, thank you so much I really appreciate it but um you really don't need any introduction but I'm really excited that uh chef steven satterfield is on the other end of the mic so welcome to the atlanta foodcast thank you for being here yeah thanks for having me oh man it's uh i'm really really excited so but how are you today i'm pretty good yeah Yeah. i know well we're it's not hot which is really nice it's wonderful it's not too hot yeah i love it when i get a chance to do interviews and i'm just trying to like you know keep things going and it's like sweltering heat but it's like we got a breeze and like a crazy thunderstorm heading our way so but this is good like you know it's it's nice and cozy weather but all the feels yeah all the feels all the yeah this is like the antithesis of summertime (laughs) weather but it's great it's a great day for a podcast but um but chef i want to get to know you a little bit more i want to ask you some some fun questions just about like where you come from and your background and my first question that I ask every single one of my guests is I want to know who cooked for you growing up and what kind of cook was he or she? Well, my, my mom did all the cooking mostly, unless it was grilling, then it was my dad. Nice. Like very typical American uh, um, roles. And I grew up in Savannah, Georgia. I'm the youngest of four siblings. Um, both my parents were educators. So it was, dinner was always kind of a quick thrown together thing. I mean, my mom worked all day and so did my dad. You know, they just didn't really put a lot of time and effort into it, which is fine. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, get, I get it now as an adult. <laughs> right. <laughs> Man, and the youngest of four, you had to get the biggest fork then. You were, you were trying I had, to... I had to scrap for, for scraps. <laughs> <laughs> so brothers, uh, brothers and sisters? Yeah. Oh man, how, how what's the years between you guys? Uh, well, my sister's the oldest; she's eleven years older than me. Oh man! And then um, older brother, eight years older, and then another brother that's two years older. Man, so you really had to like get some good like fighting muscles to the table. Of, yeah, like, I mean, well, look at me; I'm kind of scrawny. I didn't really get to it. You had fast to like enough. weave your way in there, though. It's <laughs> like no, the last pork, the last pork chops for me, guys. You know, like I got to get in there. Uh, what kind of eater were you as a kid? Very picky. Were you? Extremely picky. We kindred spirit, man. I was a nightmare. I was such a picky kid. Yep. Yeah. What what was like your biggest fear? I didn't have any fears. I just had a lot of dislikes. <laughs> like I I thought a lot of things tasted gross. I I actually feel like I had an extremely sensitive palate when I was a kid that now I understand a little bit better. Um but like certain things were repulsive to me, like cucumbers, which I love now. Olives, which I love now. Um mayonnaise i hated love it now oh, so man. i mean it's just weird like there, there was just certain things i just literally couldn't stomach them yeah are, are you like a homemade mayonnaise guy now or are you oh, absolutely oh yeah yeah but see now that i homemade mayonnaise changed my life changed my perspective on mayonnaise now i can eat any kind of mayonnaise but i prefer homemade of course yeah i think i i have the i don't know maybe it's just the approach but if i make mayonnaise in you know our blender at home i'll actually drag my finger through it and try it because i need to make sure that it's got the right you know balance but i still have a hard time if it's any even dukes as much as i love it like i can't just eat it by itself i've got like this weird aversion you know like i've got to like set myself up for it but well sure it's a condiment it's not yeah (laughs) you don't want to eat it by the spoonful (laughs) exactly yeah it's just so hard to like get you know that that mental side like there's just a huge hurdle to get over but um but man that's 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 just so funny like i love i love talking to people like where their background they were such a picky kid growing up and then totally and i eat everything now i mean literally there's nothing i won't eat um or try at least. I mean, there's certain things obviously that I don't like as much, but I'm I'm a very well-rounded eater now. So yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm proud about that. Yeah, yeah, I know. I think that there was like a big moment, um, like when I was a kid, of sushi was. I mean, like just the flavor of nori. Like it finally just clicked. You know, it's like oh my yeah. gosh, like there's just a whole world out there that totally. I've just been missing. Um, Man, something else about your background that I just, I really love, but music is a huge part of your background. And I know that you were, I mean, did you grow up playing music and then? I did actually. Um, I pretty young um, learned how to play a couple of different woodwind instruments with more of a focus on clarinet and then later bass clarinet. And um, I had a private tutor. I was in every form of band you could think of through school, including um marching band and symphonic band. And I ended up getting into the Savannah Youth Symphony Orchestra and also competing in the classical music world um, for like the state uh, competitions and things like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I guess fast forwarding a little bit. So you, you're you here in Savannah, or here in Savannah, we're not in Savannah, everybody. Like, so here in Atlanta, you're actually, you, you actually had some time where you're actually in a, a fairly successful, like popular band. And this was in the nineties. Correct. Yeah. So, um, I took some time off from playing music and it was when I was in college. And during that time I was listening to a lot of music and kind of discovering a lot of things as a lot of college students do. <laughs> um, and I just, I really, um, 
you know, found myself listening to a lot of alternative stuff. And um, I was also big into like the new wave stuff in the 80s. And so I, after I graduated, I picked up a guitar for the first time and taught myself how to play and found a friend who uh, was also playing guitar a little bit. And then we found a drummer and found a bass player. And we were just doing it for fun. And we recorded some songs and sent them to a few labels um, on cassette tape. Nice. And because that's what we had at the time to record with. Um, and we ended up getting interest from a label in the UK called Two Pure. Um, they were the same label that launched uh, Stereo Lab and PJ Harvey and several other bands, um, some of them much more obscure. But we were, we ended up signing with them. We were the first American band to sign to Two Pure, which, um, so it was funny because we were an American, American musicians that were licensed back to the States through a UK label. Wow. Um, so we, we sort of made international headlines on an indie scale and we were literally plucked out of obscurity and immediately on college radio. So it was a really exciting time. And um, we ended up cutting four records in five years. Wow. And got to tour all over the US and played in New York City a lot and a lot of regional shows in the Southeast. So it was great. It was a great time in in our lives where we were being creative and and being semi-successful at it. Were we successful like paying our bills with it? No. That's why I started working in restaurants. Gotcha. Yeah. And, you know, when I, um, my wife and I moved to Atlanta in the summer of 2013 and, you know, I, uh, just, just through, you know, the industry, like got to know some people and, you know, they just giving us recommendations of where to eat. And like one restaurant you guys really need to go to is Steven Satterfield's restaurant, Miller Union. And they were also just giving me a little bit of your background. Like something that you're really going to love is and they just like laid out your whole history of like, you know, being in a band and touring and like cutting records. And like, there was a huge part of me that really wanted to work in the industry, like before iTunes. And I was like, I'm going to work in A&R and I'm going to be like the coolest guy. And yeah. so it was, uh, it was just really cool to like know that about you and also seeing, you know, the, your, your menu and actually the restaurant. And like, so having that knowledge of, of your, of just of your background is just really, really cool. So I just think that's an awesome part of your story. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting chapter in my life and um prior to that i was at georgia tech and studied architecture um which is another chapter (laughs) Um, because i spent five years doing that and really enjoyed school um had a great education i studied abroad in paris for a year and when i got into the field it was when everything was changing from working with your hands to working on a computer and it was for me, it was a turnoff because it wasn't what I had signed up for. I knew I wanted to make things, and I didn't want to make them in, in what was at the time a very clunky version of CAD. Um, so I, I did a couple of internships, and I was just like, this isn't really what I signed up for, and literally just walked away from architecture and never touched it again. Wow. Where did you want to go with architecture? Um, I thought I wanted to be an architect. Yeah. Know, but the more I got into... Um, just you know, having to work through your way, work your way through a firm, and I, I just I knew I also wanted to be in charge of something, and I knew it would take a very long time to get there, and I just kind of 
I just decided I wasn't feeling it, you know? Yeah. Much to my parents' dismay. <laughs> they spent some money on, right. on college. So. Like, oh, man, you're set up to be an architect. And now <laughs> what's next? Like, oh, not architecture. Right. Wow, that's yeah. the perfect, like, answer from your child, you know? But I think <laughs> what, what I did was I listened to my gut, and I missed music, and so that's where I went with that for a while. And, I, and you know, it was exciting. It was fun. It was semi-successful, but at the end of the day... You know, I couldn't really count on it as a long-lasting career. Um, and I was already working at rest in restaurants during that whole time I was playing music. And I had started to get more serious about food. And then I came to a point where I, I decided I need, to make a, I need to make a decision, one or the other, because they were both suffering. Um, so I decided to cut a solo record and see where it went and if it didn't you know go somewhere that that made some sense career-wise then I was just gonna give it up and focus on the food side gotcha. so that's what I did yeah and you have such an incredible background of working under great people here in Atlanta people who have really I mean just created the map of what it means to be a diner and eater here in Atlanta. Talk to me a little bit about your restaurant background. Sure. Um, well, first of all, one of the first restaurants I worked at here in Atlanta is Eats. Yes. I walked Ponce. by it yesterday. Yeah. And it's still going strong. I mean, it's been there for since 1992, I believe. It's awesome. Or 93, maybe. I think they opened in 93. Um, so I was one of the first people on the staff there. And it was an interesting mix of people. Everybody had a college education. It was during that kind of slacker phase, um, <laughs> like the film Slackers. Remember that? <laughs> it was kind of during that whole time period where everyone was really disenchanted with moving into the, um, you know, the world of, of being at a, in a cubicle and we all wanted to do something different, you know? So we were all just, we were all young, just trying to figure out how can we escape from this for a minute. And I ended up working there for four years off and on so it was like we would go on tour and come back and Bob Hatcher who's the owner would always have a place for us to um, to jump right back in because you know it's the restaurant business you always need people so I was really lucky to have you know to have a place that was sort of like a home base um, and I could fill in shifts whenever and then I, I started working in a couple of different other spots um, but what I, to me, the turning point was when I got a job with Ann Quatrano at Floataway Cafe. And at the time, it was very new. Um, so it was super busy. I was very intimidated, but I had eaten there one time, and I just thought, this is the kind of food that I would like to learn how to make. Um, it was elevated, but simple and rustic and very fresh and seasonal. And I just, I just thought it was really incredible. It seemed very different, really stood out. And so I, I basically just begged her for a job. I kept stopping by and, you know, dropped my resume off, which really didn't amount to much. <laughs> what year um, was this? This was in 1999. So I had been, uh, you know, working at a couple of places. I worked at Eats. I worked at the Flatiron in East Atlanta. I helped open the Universal Joint in um, Oak Oak. First. And so Floataway was the next step. And, you know, but all those places are great places, but they're definitely very casual. And, you know, there's, there's not, 
it's not elevated. And so I ended up getting a job with her and working the wood burning grill, which is probably one of the hardest jobs you could do oh, in, man. in that restaurant. Um, Cause you have to build a fire, keep it going all night long and cook over it. And, but I found that the challenge, um, you know, really exciting. And I worked there for about a year when we had our final tour coming up. Um, I had to let them know, you know, like, Hey, because we had taken some time off between the time we recorded and the time uh, Winter Birds, which was our last Sealy record, came out. And uh, we were going on tour in February, so I let them know around Christmas time, you know, hey, I, I can't stay much longer. I've got to go on tour. I really, I would love to come back if I can. And, you know, they're like, it's not like that here. You can't, you can't just leave and come back. <laughs> right, you know? right. So, um, and I get, I understand that being a restaurant owner now. <clears throat> and so... While we were out, um, it was, we didn't realize it was our last tour, but we, we kind of fizzled after that. Um, we were all starting to get a little older. I was, um, I turned 30 that year and so did our bass player Joy and, the, and Eric and Lori were both late 20s. And, you know, we were kind of like, well, what are we going to do next? Like we're, we're all, this is like the big push where you, you know, are you going to have a family? Are you going to grow a career? Or what are, what are what are you going to do? And so we all just kind of went different directions. And um, that's when when I got back from that tour, and we sort of figured it out on tour, like this this maybe is our our last one. Wow. Um, and it, it's more complex than that, but I won't go into it. <laughs> but anyway, when I got back, I I had I had eaten at uh, Watershed in Decatur, the original Watershed. Um, prior to us going out of town and they, they were really new as well. And they had just converted into a full blown restaurant where it started off as like a gift shop with, with wine, wine gifts, flowers, and they had like sandwiches. And then they changed, they decided to make it a, a real restaurant, um, lunch and dinner and wine service and all that stuff and a bar. And so I approached them and, and I was, Real big fan of Scott Peacocks. I didn't know him at all, but I just had been following him. And also, um, you know, the Indigo Girls, Emily was one of the owners. And, yeah. they, you know, they had they had a lot going on. Like, it was becoming very popular. Everybody was talking about it. And I got um, hired as their grill cook there. And I was I was their first grill cook. They had just installed a grill. So Wow. And you're um, like, yeah, I got all this wood or but it, fire building experience. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm your guy. Exactly. <laughs> it wasn't a wood burning grill, but um, yeah. nonetheless, I still had a little um, yeah. technique that I had picked up and was able to to share. So I was happy about that. And I worked my way up to saute, and then um, became a sous chef at dinner. Uh, after that, um, Scott really Scott Peacock really. Um, noticed me and took a lot of um, initiative to teach me and if he had an event he would ask me to come and help and and then he would sometimes have events out of town and he would ask me to come and help do the events and so it was really exciting because i i was watching him kind of grow to his stardom and and he at the time he was being you know, he'd been nominated for james beard award and he was working on a cookbook and it was you know, I saw the whole thing like unraveling before me and, and just how, you know, it's very stressful and exciting and how hard everybody worked to, to make his food, which was really incredibly simple. 
and very seasonal and um, with a with a strong um, bend to historic southern roots and yeah i just think he's a fantastic cook and he's very very smart and i learned so much from him so i ended up staying there for almost nine years um and that's not really typical of the restaurant business but i just every time i thought about leaving a new challenge would come my way or i'd get promoted or um learn something new i even i mean i by the time i left there i learned how to do every single thing in the restaurant i I mean i even staged in the front of the house behind the bar and on the floor and even at the host stand just to see how everything worked because i I was starting to get the idea that maybe I might want to own my own restaurant. And it, the more I could learn from them, the more I would have the ability to do so. Um, so during that time, my current business partner now, Neil, Neil McCarthy, was um, working at Soto Soto. And he kind of had the same experience, but in the front of the house. He started as a busboy and then became a server assistant and then got onto the floor. And then, you know, he started learning a lot about wine and service and later became uh, an assistant manager and then the general manager of both Soto Soto and Friedi by the time he left. So we were both basically running other people's restaurants and we were like, same question, where do we go from here? And I was friends with his wife and she kept kind of pushing us together, like, you guys should maybe do something together. Like, you've got all the front of the house experience. He's got all the, you know, the back of the house and, and maybe it's time for y'all to do something. And so we started talking and, um, and Carolyn was a great like instigator of the whole thing. She really, <laughs> she really was the catalyst for his wife to, um, to get us to, to get off of our asses and, and actually do it. And so <clears throat> we ended up meeting with a, a business consultant who, kind of gave us like homework assignments on a weekly basis and we were essentially writing a business plan with him under his guidance and by the time we completed that and also many other steps like contacting an architect and uh, um, contacting a um, a broker for a lease and you know looking around at spaces and by the time we had our business plan done and we already had several options for places that we could get a lease on and we you know started shopping for investors and it Man. just all sort of just happened in this way that um we had the guidance of of a great um business advisor and i i really don't think we could have done it without him and then we both let our prospective workplaces know that we were leaving we wanted to open something and what was um, that moment like? Oh, it's so dreadful. I can I can only imagine. I mean, <laughs> I I've never I've never stepped away from something where you know you'd been in a in a place for such a, a I mean for the restaurant world that's a long period of time that right. makes you like a dinosaur in someone's restaurant. Totally. You know? and, well, we were starting to get nervous because we were looking at spaces on our days off. We were coordinating our days off, and and basically every time we had time off, we were working to build this idea of of what would soon become Miller Union, and. You know, it's a, it's a tricky thing because you don't want to tell your employer too soon, because then, you know, then you're then you're like a lame duck, right? But if you if you wait too late, you don't give them enough notice, and you want to be respectful. And so, because I'd been there so long, I decided to give them f- three to four months notice because oh wow, I felt like 
I had created so many systems for them that whoever trained underneath me would have a lot to learn. Yeah. And, and Scott um, was incredible, but he didn't really work in the restaurant during dinner service. So he had, um, it's, it's a very long story, but he took care of Edna Lewis, who was a famous African-American Southern chef who mm-hmm. ended up under his care in her elder years. Yeah, it was a, one of the one of the most amazing things to read just yeah. about his history. I mean, here in Atlanta, and um, I actually had uh, Delia Champion on the show months ago, and uh, we talked about just Atlanta in the 90s, and she talked so highly of Watershed, and she's very closely connected with the Indigo Girls. Totally. And that was one thing that she really, she, she taught me more than I actually knew on that part of Scott's story. Right, right, right. It's really right. interesting. Yeah, so... so a lot of our systems at dinner, you know, like the way in which we um, ha- had our ticket system or how, or any just organizational stuff, I had a lot to download on whoever was coming behind me. So uh, point being, I, I was afraid that the owners may already have known because we were going around town looking at spaces. We kept, you know, it's hard to go around in Atlanta and not bump into somebody that you know. I've been here now for 30 years. At the time, it was like 20 years. And... So I was like, it's, we've got to tell them soon because if we don't, like, they're going to find out from somebody else and I'd rather them hear it from me. Yeah. And so I just had a meeting with one of the owners about something unrelated and, and I just dropped the bomb. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I really actually thought that, that she knew um, because of a couple of things that were said, but I just took them out of context because I was being paranoid. Right, and so um, I, I thought it was. I thought she was just going to be like, "Yeah, I already knew," and she was like, "What? What oh, are you talking man. about?" And so it was. It was very stressful, and and I just said, "Listen, I, you know, I'll be here." I think it was March, and I was like, "I'm going to stay through June, and you know, I can help you interview people if you want me to, like whatever you need. Like you guys have been so good to me, and I want to." repay you however I can. Like this has been my home for nine years. And wow. I was very, um, I've always really respected them and I have a lot of appreciation for everything that they taught me. I wouldn't be able to run a restaurant without that experience. Yeah. Yeah. And that's such a, that, that's such an amazing thing, you know, to, to have that experience and you leave something. I, I'm a, I'm a large proponent of leaving something better than you found it, you know, and yeah. you don't always have the opportunity to do that. You know, circumstantially it could just not work and they're like, no, we need you to get out of here soon. Or they're right. left floundering of like, I can't believe you're leaving us. Like, how could you do this yeah. to us? And so, but like wedging yourself into kind of those two two situations and making it really work for your benefit and theirs. Like that's, yeah, that, that's a, not the common tale, but yeah, right. that's amazing. But, yeah. um, but yeah, you know, and, um, man, I guess this, this gets you into, so 2008, 2009 ish or sometime right around there. So you and Neil are scouting spaces. And so, and then you guys actually land on the space of where Miller union is right now. Like what was it that spoke to you guys about that space specifically? Well, you know, a lot of our um, decision about that space was really from the broker. I mean, the, 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 the commercial real estate folks have their finger on the pulse. They always know what area is about to blow up because they're out there, you know, looking at everything and they know what, they know what the rents are like or the leases are like and they know all the landlords and they can see it kind of happening and so 
Uh, West Side Urban Provisions had only been open for a little while. Um, and, uh, you know, 14th Street, Taqueria and Bacchanalia had both been there for, for a good while, um, probably nine, nine years at that time. But below that, you know, going towards 10th Street, there was a lot less happening. But there were, there were all these empty buildings. And it was truly kind of the last frontier in, in Atlanta at that time. Um, we looked at the space and, and it was actually, hadn't even been uh, developed yet. It was, a, it was just a, a, a warehouse, um, but they were about to start construction on it. So they were working on the building um, before we even, like, I think we signed the lease before we even really saw what the space was going to look like. Oh, wow. We saw drawings. And um, we were the first tenants in there for two years before anybody else moved in. So it was really, it really felt like the edge of the world in some ways. Yeah. Because um, it's where 10th Street dead ends on Brady Avenue. Brady's just a two-block long street that runs between Howell Mill and Marietta. And it's kind of a curved street and honestly i didn't even know it existed like and oh, i man. went to georgia tech it's right down the street right it just it's just a kind of quiet little street not anymore but it was at the time <laughs> um the only other thing that was on there is compound which is a hip-hop club and they've been there for a while um their hours are so late it's almost like they don't really affect us too much mm -hmm. well that's a different story, but um, <laughs> feel the bass coming through the wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they get they get they get started up late. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's where you're going after. It'd be service. nice if they cleaned up their trash on Sunday mornings. I'm going to say that right now on the podcast because <laughs> we'd like for them to keep the neighborhood cleaner. So I hope you're listening, guys from comp, uh, Compound. <laughs> Love uh, you guys, but yeah, <laughs> let's keep the place. Let's clean. Let's be good neighbors. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, it just felt. I was very nervous about that location because I live in Inman Park and I was like, I never come over here. Why? I mean, who's going to come over here? Like in my mind, it just seemed like not the best idea, but I was convinced by my business partners and by our broker at, that it was really a good location because you have access to direct to Midtown on 10th Street. You have access direct to downtown from Marietta Street. Uh, direct to Buckhead from Northside and Howell Mill. And the interstate is right at 10th Street. And so really everybody can access you pretty easily uh, without a lot of turns. And, you know, we had a good sized parking uh, situation with, you know, ballet comes with it. And so all those things kind of, okay, this is good. And the lease at the time was, was a great price. Uh, now I think the West Side is probably double what we pay. Oh, and, man. you know, we got in at a really great time because it was a huge economic downturn, the, the Great Recession, as they call it now. And so it was a tricky time. I mean, I think we might have been one of the only restaurants that opened that year. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it was, we, were, we were very worried about the economy and people actually spending money because going out to dinner is a luxury. You know, if you're, if you're broke, you're going to eat at home or eat something cheap and and so and we knew our price point was you know we didn't want to be an expensive restaurant but when you're serving uh, locally sourced organic produce and humanely raised meats and you make everything from scratch 
it's going to cost something. I mean, that's that's the cost of doing business. And so our our menu prices truly reflect reflect the real price of what we pay. And you know, we we mark it up just as as low as we possibly can. And so I you know, I was just nervous about who's going to come and at this time in this recession and, and spend money here. And as soon as we opened the doors, we were slammed. And, and that's amazing. And you know, the, how you guys approached the concept and especially, you know, your, your approach to seasonal cooking. I mean, uh, the, the, the recipes that I know in my head from, from your book, from Rue to Leaf and, and dining in the restaurant and just hearing that level of transparency, you know, and really just the, the candor with, you know, like, I, I don't want you to feel like this is so unapproachable. It's, it's produce that was, you know, developed and wrested from the ground from human hands, like someone who's, you know, deft ability to, to actually farm, you know, like that's, you're, you're celebrating like that, that style of, of not only just agriculture, but also what it means to the dining world. And I mean, but that's, that's, that's such a huge, that's such a huge part of, of your, of your background, you know, and just how, how you really brought that to Miller Union, um, especially back in like 2008, 2009, you know, I, I can only imagine that that being on the forefront of what is today, you know, of how people are approaching food. Well, that's why I was following Ann Quatrano and Scott Peacock, because they were both some of the first chefs in town that I'm aware of that were using local farmers and they, they were really into it. And that, you know, that's how I developed some, some of the relationships with some of these farms that honestly have, I've been working with for, you know, from their restaurants to now, like 20 years, almost 18 years. Man. And, um, these guys work so hard, you know, and, and we're in such a fertile place. I mean, it's raining right now, um, but we, we get a lot of rain and sunshine, and it's very green, and a lot of things grow here. And so we're really lucky. Like, and when you think about, too, back in that time period, like in the late 90s, um, there was one farmer's market, and it was at Morningside. Um, yeah. And it's still there. Uh, it's, it, I think it's Atlanta's only all-organic market. I don't know if it still is the only one, but... Um, that's in the uh, across from Alon's on, on uh, yeah high, on uh, Highland Avenue, and look at how many farmers markets we have now. Yeah, just Incredible. in town alone, there's Freedom Market, there's still Morningside, we have Peachtree Road, uh, Grant Park, yeah, East Atlanta, yeah. Decatur. Um, I'm, I think I'm forgetting some, but yeah, there's, it's there's, there's too many to name. I mean, now there I yeah. think there's one actually that's kind of over in like College Park or Adair Park because of the Beltline. Yeah, and, and then you know all the suburban towns have their markets too, like Marietta and Norcross. Oh and, yeah, you know, big time. So Roswell, I mean, they all have. So it's amazing to see the consumer de- demand and how it shifted, and everyone wants local fresh produce now. And I think it's wonderful to see the support from the community for local agriculture because we're in a place where there's room to grow like no pun intended. And, um, <laughs> and I've seen a lot of young new farmers that are coming to us and we're really excited to support them because that's the future of food. And so just to see that's, it's, it's nice to know that there's still some young people that want to work yeah, <laughs> and that want to farm. And, um, cause it's very hard work and you have to be dedicated to the craft in the same way. If you want to be a cook, you know, there's a, unfortunately there's a lot of, um, 
glamorization and kind of sort of there's just a lot of weird sort of fetish around yeah. you know chefs and and they they think it's like this glamorous thing and you show up and you you know sling some pans and some fire comes up and then you, everybody claps and you know <laughs> you're making all this money but it's it's really hard work and you really have to care and you have to want to do it and so many people don't realize how much time and effort it takes and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to screw up and you learn from them hopefully and if you don't maybe you shouldn't be doing it you know <laughs> so yeah there's just a lot of um hard work on the agriculture side and I think there's a lot of hard work on the cooking side and I think there's this mutual admiration society between chefs and farmers that we really have a bond yeah that we you know they appreciate how what we do with their stuff and we couldn't do what we do without them yeah it's uh, someone described it to me it's it's amazing watching someone who's essentially creating art and then there's another artist that's continually turning it into art and there, there's not many processes that really do that, you know, of like, I, I worked so painstakingly to, to grow cabbage and you're turning it into this dish that is still the same. Like, it's still the same thing that I created, but you're putting it on a different level, a different level of approachability and flavor. And you're, and you're really turning it into the, the best possible product that it can be. It's, it's a really incredible partnership that you guys have like just with the farm community. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to spend some time talking a little bit uh, just about, you know, your just vegetables and and especially, you know, the um, you're bringing like this, my my favorite story, just like in hearing about Miller Union and finally getting my first experience at your restaurant. But your seasonal vegetable plate is uh, it's the perfect celebration of just that seasonal vegetables. And it's. Uh, I, I don't want to even talk about it anymore that, that just in hearing your description, but like, just, just talk to me about like, you know, how, how that is on the menu and how you actually create this dish. Sure. Well, <clears throat> I mean, so vegetables are important to us at Miller Union. Um, obviously we, we spend a lot of time thinking about them and, and we try to really pay attention to the seasons and be seasonally correct at all times. In fact, when you walk in the door, um, when you look down our hallway, there's a chalkboard that once used to have farm names on them, but we work with so many farms now that we couldn't list them all. Oh, man. So we decided to change it to, um, so we didn't want to leave anybody out, we decided to change it to what's in season. And um, that's really my philosophy about cooking is you should just cook with what's available in season at the time and figure out how to use all those things. Um, I think vegetables have they're having their moment right now. And um, there's even a vegetable category for cookbooks with the James Beard Foundation that was not there five years ago. So it's awesome. Um, or maybe was maybe started five years ago, but it's in the past five years. And it's just, um, you know, the way I think about it is this is our palette. And like, if we're painting this, this these are the colors that we have to work with, right? That's going to do it for part one of my conversation with Chef Steven Satterfield. Definitely come back next week for part two when we round out our conversation. 
But one thing before you move on to your next podcast of the day, I want you to check out an event that I'm very much looking forward to. It's happening on August 11th, and it's the Slow Food Atlanta Ice Cream Social. It's held at the Cathedral of St. Philip, and it's the same place where the Peachtree Road Farmer's Market is on the weekends. Ice cream from tons of local chefs, and it's a great time. It's absolutely encouraged that you bring all of the ice cream-loving kiddos and neighbors in your life, and don't forget to bring a big spoon. Tickets are on sale now at slowfoodatlanta.org slash social. Until next time, I'm your host, Ben Getz. Thanks again for listening to the Atlanta Foodcast.